This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the end of John chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse 53, we'll be continuing on tonight through chapter 8, verse 11. John 7:53 through 8:11 Hear now the reading of God's word And everyone went to his own house but Jesus went to the mount of olives Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery And when they had set her in the midst They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up. And said to him, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening... I pray that by your spirit you would illuminate our hearts to receive it, that we would see in this passage um, your grace, we would see your mercy, and we would see the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us who live in this world as fallen sinful humans know what it's like to be caught. That is, we've done something wrong, and we have to reckon with the consequences of our actions. Any of us who have been children, which is all of us, especially those who grew up with siblings in our household, know what it's like to get caught, to get told on, and have to deal with the fallout. This is something we learn from a very early age. It can happen to us as adults, too. 
Maybe you're out driving one day and you're not showing proper regard for the traffic laws of South Dakota and suddenly you see the flashing lights and you hear the sirens and you know that your day is about to get a bit more expensive. How does it feel when you get caught? Well, there's various ways we can react. One is defensiveness. Well, he started it or she started it. Well, officer, the sign was behind a tree. I didn't see it. Or even dishonest denial. That wasn't really me. It's not what it looks like. Or we could go to guilt and shame and despair. I, I know it was wrong. I'm sorry. Please don't be mad. Well, being caught is what happens when the illusion that our sins and misdeeds can be hidden is shattered. It can be easy when we sin privately to think that no one knows or nobody cares or nobody is affected. But there are never any sins that go unnoticed to God. More so than a parent or an officer who catches us in the act of something we shouldn't be doing. God sees and knows everything that we do. None of our thoughts, words, or deeds are hidden to him. Well, in our text tonight, we see the story of someone who got caught. Something much more egregious than sibling rivalry or minor traffic offenses. And being caught, she is brought to Jesus. But we also see a lot more people getting caught in their sins just as much. And what happens to those who are caught by Jesus? We'll look at this text tonight in three points. First, teaching in 753 through 82 Jesus will continue to teach the people in Jerusalem despite the resistance he has been facing second testing in verses 3 through 6 of chapter 8 and then third and finally turnabout in verses 7 through 11 Jesus will reverse this situation in a couple of different ways so teaching testing and turnabout so first we will look at teaching in 753 through chapter 8, verse 2. Now, as we begin to look at this text, you might notice in your Bible some annotations or brackets or something about this text. And so we need to talk about the text itself. This is a passage which its authenticity and canonicity, its place in the Bible, have frequently been called into question. Depending on which version of the Bible you use, it may either have those brackets on it with some kind of disclaimer, or it may even move this passage to a footnote. Some translations have done that. The majority of modern scholars think that this text is not authentic from 753 to 811. Just as one example, Bruce Metzger, he's thought by many to, or at least he was, he's passed away, but he was thought to be in his lifetime to be the preeminent scholar of the Greek text, said in his comments, this cannot be authentic. So is that it? Does, does this settle the matter? Well, to basically summarize the evidence, the text of 753 through 811 does not appear in most of the earliest copies we have of the Gospel of John. A few others place this account not in John, but in Luke. However, it should be noted that most of these earliest manuscripts reflect 
a particular manuscript tradition. They are from the East. John Calvin notes this. He says, but as it has always, it being this text, has always been received by the Latin or Western churches and is found in many old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. Now, this is not to say that those Eastern texts are bad. They're, in fact, generally good. But it is possible that some singular corruption or omission accounted for the text's disappearance there. Then we also have the writings of the church father, Augustine, who rather remarkably tells us this. He says, quote, Certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress, as if he who had said sin no more had granted permission to sin. So we have here Augustine, father of the early church of the 4th and 5th century, which would be pretty early in terms of the biblical text we have, describing a deliberate effort to remove this text, so it did exist, from the Bible. Now to this, commentator William Hendrickson adds, closely connected with this is the fact that asceticism played an important role in the sub-apostolic age. So asceticism being these dualistic practices of self-denial that led to the rise of things like monasticism, things like the prohibition of Roman Catholic priests to marry, all these sorts of things about denying the self and these practices of separating from society and things of the world. And Hendrickson continues, hence the suggestion that this section was at one time actually part of John's gospel but had been removed from it cannot be entirely dismissed. In other words, uh, we have evidence that points to the fact that it was there and was in fact in many of these manuscripts taken out. Now, it's also notable that most of the modern commentators who say this text is not authentic, they still believe that the event it's describing happened. Isn't that just fascinating? So what is the verdict? My opinion, do with that what you will, is that this is a real text. We could potentially dispute where it goes, but it is clearly very old, and we have from Augustine strong evidence it was around in his day, was around in the early church, and some didn't want it and deliberately wanted it taken away. It was removed from some texts at a time when many of the most important texts in our tradition were being compiled. So I think this is an authentic text. I'm going to approach it as such. So after all of that, by way of introduction, what does this text actually say? Well, we see that after the conflicts that Jesus had in chapter 7, that ended on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, that the crowd disperses, and we see here that Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. We don't know exactly where he went there. Perhaps he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Possibly he went to the house of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They would have lived just on the other side of that mountain in Bethany. Remember that this comes at a time when the Jews still want to arrest Jesus and put him to death, and so it makes sense that he withdraws from the city. 
He knows his time has not come. And so he does what he must to avoid those who would seek to kill him. But we see that he is not deterred for long. The very next morning, he comes right back to the temple and again starts teaching. He is certainly not being subtle. He is not operating in fear of his enemies, for he is sovereign over them. Jesus will not be given over to them until the appointed time. He knows this. He is in control over this. Jesus will not suffer and die until he purposes to suffer and die, because he has rule and power over all things and all people. He can go to the temple. He can go to the hub of his enemies, the place where they would all be gathered and where they would all be focusing the most attention because he knows that they can do nothing to him apart from his will and cooperation. So Jesus is again teaching in the temple. This time we are not told what he teaches, but his teaching is about to be interrupted anyway, which brings us to our second point. After teaching, we come to testing in verses 3 through 6 of chapter 8. We see that the scribes and Pharisees, those who have been so regularly opposing Jesus and seeking to arrest him, bring to him this woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. Based on the Greek language used, it seems that she would have been a married woman who had been unfaithful to her husband. Beyond that, the details of who she was and how she was caught are not described, which is probably for the best. But at any rate, they bring her to Jesus. Now, why would they bring her to Jesus? Adultery was, rightly, in that day, a crime. It would seem the right thing to do in this situation would be to take her to court, put her on trial, and hand down whatever verdict is just in that situation. Of course, the typical penalty for adultery in that day was death. But for some reason, well, a reason that will become clear to us, the scribes and the Pharisees don't do that. Instead, they bring this woman to Jesus and decide that he should be the one that renders judgment upon her. Now, what we see here are their evil motives and intentions. They're not interested in doing actual justice. This has already been shown in how they have conspired against Jesus thus far to murder him, to put him to death apart from cause and due process. Now they have this woman who has been caught in something very evil. No one is excusing the evil of what she has done. But the actions of the scribes and Pharisees here are also evil. They're foregoing justice because they're more interested in their conflict with Jesus and finding some sort of advantage over him. So they bring her to Jesus and they pronounce the charge. They state that she has been caught in the act of adultery and they remind Jesus of what the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, says about such offenses, that she should die, she should be stoned. Now this is true concerning that law. And it is just. Adultery, though it is often ignored and overlooked and minimized and even in many ways encouraged and celebrated in our modern culture, it is an egregious sin against God and against other people, and punishing it with death 
would not be a sentence too severe. Even in America, until about the last half a century or so, adultery was illegal in most places, punishable by criminal and civil penalties. We've certainly fallen a long way in that regard. But I digress. The interest here on the part of the scribes and Pharisees is not justice. They're just out to get Jesus, and they're willing to try anything they can come up with to do it. But Jesus knows their hearts. He knows what verse 6 tells us, that this is essentially a setup. They are acting with evil intentions. They are testing Jesus to see what he would do. It's highly probable that they don't even intend to carry out any kind of judicial process or sentence on this woman. They are merely using her as a pawn in their scheme against Jesus. So what exactly is the testing here that they are putting to Jesus? Well, there are some different possibilities. John Calvin thinks that the test is essentially to force Jesus to choose between the sentence of the Mosaic law, which would be death for adultery, and the grace and forgiveness which he has been teaching. Either he would prove himself lawless or hypocritical. That was the trap that they were trying to get Jesus to pick one side of. If this is so, then the scribes and Pharisees are making a common error. Law and grace do not exist in opposition. God's law is always good and just and righteous. Grace and forgiveness come through Christ to his people, but this does not in any way make the moral law bad or evil or no longer applicable. So if this is the trap they're setting for Jesus, they're trying to force a choice between the law and between and his teachings of grace and the favor that he has among the people. But there is another possible explanation for what the Pharisees are trying to do. This one's noted by William Hendrickson, and it's one more practical and political. While Jewish law called for the woman to be executed for adultery, the law of the occupying Roman Empire did not allow the Jews to carry out capital punishment on their own. They had to have the consent and the agreement of the Roman authorities. This will be the issue when they finally do arrest and prosecute Jesus. This is why they have to go to Pilate. They have to get him to approve the death sentence. So if this is the trap, they're forcing Jesus to choose between the Jewish law, again, the law of Moses, and the capital punishment that it would require, or the Roman law, which to violate the Roman law would make Jesus a criminal and a vigilante, to the ultimate highest law of the land at that time. Now, I would say that probably it was more likely the first scenario, that they were trying to force Jesus to judge against the law of Moses, because they were looking for a charge to bring against him so they could discredit him. Really, what they were probably trying to do is overcome Nicodemus' objection that we saw last time, where Nicodemus had called out the other scribes and Pharisees for seeking to arrest and punish Jesus without hearing, without process. It seems now that they're trying to trap Jesus in such a charge. Basically, okay, Nicodemus, you want your trial, 
well, we'll give you something to try him for. This shows just how great their corruption is, how deep their hatred of Jesus is, how far they are willing to go. He had done no crime, but they are basically trying to manufacture crimes and trap him in them and hang him on technicalities. This is how bad they want to get rid of Jesus. And Jesus knows all of this. As I said, he initially just ignores them. He is uh, riding on the ground. He's not even looking. He is giving this sham proceeding all the dignity it is due, which is none. But they persist. And this brings us to our third point. Turnabout. In verses 7 through 11, we actually will see two cases of turnabout. First, for these scribes and Pharisees, and then for the woman herself. So first, we will look at the turnabout for the scribes and Pharisees. In verse 7, after they continue to press Jesus for an answer on this, he finally gives them a response. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So what has Jesus just done? Well, for one, he has defeated the trap that the scribes and Pharisees have set for him. They want him to say something ill-advised about the Mosaic Law that will either incriminate himself to them or incriminate him to others. But instead, he shifts the burden back where it belongs, on these evil men with their evil intentions who seek to kill him. Now, some have taken from Jesus' words here an overly broad prohibition on any kind of judgment, any kind of condemnation of sin. It can be misused sort of like Jesus' other words in Matthew 7, 1, the one verse that everyone in our day knows. Judge not, lest ye be judged. People like to quote this verse similarly. You who have no sin, cast the first stone. Well, this is not a general prohibition of anyone who is a sinner to condemn or even punish sin in ways good and proper and legal. What this is, is a prohibition of hypocrisy. Do not seek to condemn another's sin while justifying or neglecting or ignoring your own sin. And in the case of these scribes and Pharisees, their sin is that, and it is against Jesus himself. It is greater than the sin of this woman. They have been seeking this whole time to murder Jesus. They have already murdered him in their hearts by their hatred. And now they're seeking to bring him in on false and manufactured charges so that they can murder him in the flesh. This is the turnabout for the scribes and Pharisees. They thought they had set the perfect trap. They thought they were so clever. They thought, oh, we've really got him this time. They thought they had given him no way out. Surely he would not want to pronounce a death sentence against this woman, not that it was his place to do it anyway. And yet he cannot afford the fallout of condemning the law of Moses. But what happens? Instead of them getting Jesus in their trap, they find themselves confronted and condemned themselves as guilty of greater sin. But what about this woman? Is Jesus ignoring the law and setting aside the punishment for her adultery? 
Is he making light of her sin like it doesn't matter? Well, this is the second case of turnabout that we see in this text. After Jesus renders his verdict, he goes back to giving this proceeding the dignity it is due, again ignoring them and writing on the ground. Now many have speculated what exactly is Jesus writing on the ground, but we simply don't know. It would be pure speculation. But he is doing this, and as he's doing this, the scribes and the Pharisees, after he has pronounced this, they all leave. Why? Well, we read that they're convicted by their consciences. They knew, though they would have hated to admit it more than anything, that Jesus was right. They came here to trap him, but he has trapped them. They know that they would be unrighteous to proceed any further with this sham proceeding, this kangaroo trial that they have cooked up. And so one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they file out, leaving just Jesus and this woman there. Now, After they are all gone, Jesus asks the woman, Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Now, he already knows where they've gone. They failed in their evil endeavor, and they have left in shame. And in doing so, they have further betrayed their own, in, their own disinterest in justice. If they really were interested in carrying out a just sentence against this woman for adultery, they would have done it a certain way. They would have taken her to the proper lawful courts. There would have been a proper lawful proceeding. They would have taken her, tried her, condemned her, and punished her according to the law of the land. But they don't. I mean, there's no reason why when they left, they couldn't have taken her with them and done that instead. The fact that they leave shows that they were never really interested in doing that. This was all just a ploy to get Jesus. They never meant to condemn this woman for her crime. And so Jesus, knowing that she has not been condemned, also says, neither do I condemn you. Now, this is another statement in this passage from which has been inferred some errors. Some take from this the idea that Jesus is no longer concerned about justice and punishment against sin. From texts like this, many of the aberrant theologies that try to paint the God of the Old Testament as mean and evil and overly legal, and Jesus as God of the New Testament as loving and forgiving and nice arise. It is probably from such false teachings as this that even those Augustine was criticizing that were trying to remove this text saw that they were dealing with. Some people even now will say that none of the Old Testament law remains binding in the New Covenant. But all of these views are false. Jesus is not turning blind eyes and deaf ears to sin. But what he is doing here is twofold. First, he is properly exercising his earthly purpose and station. They had no business bringing this woman to Jesus and making him pronounce the judgment upon her. That was their job. They should have been doing it. But they weren't doing it, and they didn't even want to do it. Jesus did not come to replace the earthly authorities in that time and place. He didn't come to rule over Jerusalem and punish crime. He came to proclaim his gospel. 
and to seek and save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. One of those lost sheep stood there before him, this woman. Now there will come a day in the future where Jesus will return as the judge of the living and the dead, but that is mercifully withheld for now. But this leads into the second thing that Jesus is accomplishing here. He is extending grace to this woman. Yes, she has sinned greatly, gravely. She fully deserved to be dragged into court and sentenced and stoned, put to death for this thing she has done. But Jesus is instead offering her forgiveness of sins, justification, his own righteousness in place of her righteousness, offering her also sanctification and the hope of eternal life that she might go and sin no more. What Jesus is really doing here is he's putting before this woman the same realities of the law and the gospel that all of us must also reckon with. We are all sinners. We have all committed sins against our God for which we deserve death and hell. Every sin, from the smallest to the greatest, deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and in that which is to come. We might not have committed adultery or conspired murder like those in this story. Maybe you have. But we have all sinned against God in various times and ways. Even the sins we don't think much of, the white lies, the coveting, the lust, the things we may not even see as that egregious. These too deserve God's wrath and curse. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of that sin is death. But in the face of our curse and condemnation comes our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God the Son. He is the second person of the Trinity. Come in the flesh as a humble servant. He and he alone kept the law perfectly without sinning. He died a criminal's death on the cross though he did nothing to deserve it. Why did he do this? He did this that he might satisfy the wrath of God that was due on us for our sins. Though you stand before God as one accursed and one sentenced to death, God himself, the judge, has made a way for your salvation. As he called this woman, to go and sin no more, so he calls you. Repent of your sins, turn from them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who has been revealed to you as your only hope and the only satisfaction and forgiveness of sins. Receive his Holy Spirit by which you are sanctified so that you might go and sin no more. And then and only then have the confidence that your remaining sins are covered, that your life is hidden eternally with Christ. That is the gospel freely offered to you this day. But Christ not only offers justification, he does offer sanctification. He doesn't save us so that we can continue to live the same lives and be the same people. He tells this woman to go and sin no more. Perhaps you're here tonight, 
you think yourself a Christian, but you continue in your sin. You might hide it. You might rationalize it or justify it. You find some way to identify with it. Christ gives us new life, but this causes us to live a new life. He does not make light of our sin. Our sin was so egregious that it required his death. If you are living a life characterized by your sin, the call is to repent and to heed Jesus' call. Turn from your sin, trust in the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, and go with sincerity of purpose and effort to sin no more. Because there will come a day when Jesus returns in judgment. You will either receive and rest upon him as he has offered in the gospel in this life and receive life and salvation, or you won't. And when he returns as judge, you will face eternal wrath and condemnation. Those are the only options. And so may we all be found in Christ on that day. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that in it is shown forth uh, the power of the gospel, what you have done for our sins. But also, too, this text, we see that it exposes hypocrisy. And perhaps tonight it even exposes our own as we recognize our own sin and unworthiness. And so I pray that you would forgive us of our sins I pray that any here who have not heard this gospel would believe and receive it. And I pray that all of us would be filled with your Holy Spirit and we would strive for new obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.